Hello, and welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. Today's episode is about beauty. Love it or loathe it, we've all got an opinion about beauty. Jack exclaims that society could be more beautiful if all available surfaces were not just treated as yet another advertising platform. And Sean provides, that's me, actually, and I provide a dense explainer on the concept of the spectacle. So eat it up. It's good stuff. The world could be more beautiful. Is this a true or false? No, I, th- I, th- I think it could. There's a weird thing with the imagination of socialism that comes from 1984 and, you know, depictions of kind of authoritarian Stalinist Soviet shit. That's like everyone's wearing grey onesies. And it doesn't help that a lot of us legit love brutalism now. <laughs> I mean, okay. Br- sidebar, brutalism is amazing, yeah. right? But, but I mean, part of the reason we, we love brutalism is a, is like a response to all this like glass and steel Norman Foster bullshit architecture that's everywhere. Well, but, I also thought it was, I can't remember what the architectural movement was, but it was the, was it like functionalism or mm. it was the idea that function is beauty. Like seeing something working well is an aesthetic thing in itself. There's no need to make a block of offices and make it look like it's a massive phallic <laughs> like glass turquoise <laughs> object yeah like that's 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 not actually nice it's like that story of jeremy corbyn walking around vienna saying this is all capitalist <laughs> i've walked through vienna i don't i don't it, it, i i it's capitalist and colonialist like the idea of vaulting buildings and having to make every little like domed archway look historical or that kind of stuff ends up serving the opposite purpose because it, it, it betrays the ideology beneath it, which is that wealth is beauty. Large things is yeah. beauty. Being able to buy loads of labor is beauty. But actually what brutalism does, it's not just reactionary. It's it's saying this thing just working nicely without having to have like weird frills on it or without having to carry the colonial overtones of the architecture that we're stealing. Mm. It just is nice just to be what it is. Have you seen Rochdale Town Hall? I don't know. So a cool one. thing about Rochdale Town Hall is I think it's Hitler's favourite building in England. Okay. So yeah, he, uh, he like put out orders to the Luftwaffe like don't bomb because obviously they're bombing fuck out of Lancashire. Yeah. Um, he went like, just don't don't bomb, bomb this, this bit. don't bomb this bit because I want it to be dismantled brick by brick and brought and back brought- to Germany. <laughs> but it's designed by the same guy who did like the National History Museum mm-hmm. in London, and so it's sort of like gothic. imposing gothic classical grim Mm. it looks a bit like a combination of dracula's castle from castlevania 
or which is just any Dracula's castle, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, then, and then uh, mixed with you know bit of columns, bit of fash, bit of oh like, yeah, they love the Roman Greco, mm, yeah, yeah, grim. So I think I think you're right on that because that's just a classic. It, it, there's even buildings that people are like, oh, these are really nice. Oh, architecture is fully ideological mm. and brutalism is just trying to wipe the slate clean obviously it's you can't look at brutalism without knowing like the political social projects that it's connected to yeah but the idea of being like no i just have a normal idea of what's beautiful yeah in that i think a mansion is beautiful but a council house is ugly but there's no ideology at play here mm. well and it's also because i mean i wasn't thinking about architecture i was thinking about beauty in life generally but on architecture like everything that's built, all the houses that people live in now, unless you're fucking loaded, are built by these property developers. Mm -hmm. So people have got very little agency about, yeah, okay, they can put a picture up inside it maybe. Yeah. But in terms of how it looks, there's that McMansion aesthetic or just bland suburbia, you know, copy and paste houses. And it's quite are you, grim. It's not, it's... Going back to Vienna for a moment, you yeah. were of Hundertwasser House. No, tell me about it. Uh, so v Vienna, to its credit, does have some really good social housing schemes. Like mm. any new, like massive block of flats, no matter how expensive it is, like a percentage needs to go to social housing. Nice. Um, but Hundertwasser House was this. Hundertwasser, uh, I can't remember his first name. He mm. was like an eccentric who was tasked with making some interesting social housing, and he loved curves. Mm. So everything there aren't any straight lines <laughs> in this building. Um, so from the outside, it's like this higgledy piggle looks like a, uh, a child has tried to draw a house, but the child yeah. isn't very good at straight lines. Yeah. Um, insides, um, all curved. There's a lot of slopes and there are rules like you can decorate in any way you like, including to as far as you can reach out of your window. People are encouraged <laughs> to just paint on the wall outside as far as they can reach. Amazing. Yeah. If you go beyond that, it might be seen that you're on someone else's patch. Yeah, breach of the social contract kind yeah. of thing. That's a it must be a nightmare to buy appliances for because they're all like cuboid. Yeah, like it's what <laughs> I've heard about like, you know, there's loads of like towers made in Britain that are completely cylindrical going mm. up. Mm. Well, how do you buy furniture for that? Because furniture always presumes you've got a straight wall. Yeah. So you're either like got to get custom furniture or you have to arrange the room as though it was presumed to be a square anyway and just ignore the bits that bulge <laughs> out in the middle of every wall. Yeah. Not just architecture, mm -hmm. but everything. So there's this the stereotype of a socialist idea is, is that, oh, because everything will have to be made the same. It will all be, you know, just all generic and the same. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, just in day-to-day in, in -day life, this th everything you see is this kind of corporate sludge, right? Mm -hmm. So there's adverts everywhere. Like there's branding on the, like the microphones we're using mm -hmm. and like the computer monitor. And like, even if you're, you know, you're having leisure time at home, even if you've chosen, you know, you've chosen to consume some product that you've bought that, you know, some TV show, but then underneath it, it's going to have the logo of the TV company all mm -hmm. the time. And you, you just look up and every, everywhere there's advertising everywhere. Um, and that's bland to me. That's fucked because almost everything we see has some corporate function, has some serves capital in some way. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to look at like a bus going past and instead of an advert for fifa 2020 it's like picasso's guernica or just a bus or just a bus i kind of think because there's someone who made no a, i want guernica on it <laughs> yeah yeah guernica okay but like someone made um it was like a filter for like google maps yeah that can recognize advertisements 
and they replace them either with nothing or they do they they replace them with classic works of art. Mm. But I really like That's amazing. the surrealness of of being able to be in a city center and it's visually so much less noisy. Mm. Like apart from a few notices saying like, oh, be careful not to hurt yourself or whatever it is that people mm. think public notices or mm. social function they're supposed Don't to Don't feed the sharks. Yeah, everything is just very functional. I find your eyes are always drawn to the adverts because they're like extremely technicolor, bright, eye-grabbing images, which means I don't get to actually... There's like this situationist idea that like when you go into a city... You should go the wrong way and get lost and stuff. Capital, whenever you leave a train station, you are guided by the plans of capital mm. to go into the commercial hub. Mm. And you, in order to like have any experience of a new place which isn't capital-led, you need to just go and get lost straight away and find some weird back street. I used to be part of a thing called the Sheffield uh, Society for Experimental Travel. Mm-hmm. And we used to do things like uh, we'd go on a train to Leeds and you'd go in twos and one of you would put a blindfold on when you got on the train Mm -hmm. and the other person would describe everything that you'd go, you just go around Leeds and then come home and then take the blindfold off and you had the blindfold on the whole time. Yeah. Uh, or we'd go around, we did a walking tour of Sheffield. We did a walking tour of Paris in Sheffield. Nice. So we got a map of Paris and put like uh, the Eiffel Tower was the Arts Tower, nice. and dressed up as like American tourists, and then you know there's like twenty five of us or whatever, and then we just followed the direction. So if it was like okay, now we're going to go to the Louvre, and then there has to be this amount of left turns and right turns, so we just follow yeah. those directions, and then I think the Louvre was like an RAC garage, right. and we were all in like this and taking photos and posing in front of it in a really kind of touristy. Wait, and then, you that know, this bloke crazy. with a cup of tea just like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Um, oh, completely shut down by the Students' Union for uh, health and safety reasons. For one reason or another, that was after I wasn't involved in it anymore, but I can't mm. remember what happened. Um, and then another one we did was we went to Hamburg and we used a tour, a, a tour guide from 1898, uh, an old book. And we, uh, we tried to dress up, as it said, but it suggested like corduroy suits, which turned out to be like really expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't do that. And then we just like couch surfed with, uh, you know, people in Hamburg. So we got to meet kind of interesting people that way. And there was one guy who had, he lived, he was a TV. He was like fucking loaded actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I think he worked on t- German TV. Uh, and then we were just chilling out in his flat and he was like, oh, do you guys want to see my canoe? And we were like, yeah, always yes, please, fun. always. And then, because he was right next to the canal, we just, really sunny day, June, just put the canoe on the canal and all three of us got in it with a load of tinnies and just like had some canal to it. It was great. Mm-hmm. But going around Hamburg using these directions and obviously because Hamburg got bombed to shit by the RAF. Yeah. <laughs> so almost everything it told us to go and see was either gone and replaced with luxury flats. Or so where did you get these directions from pre-World War II? An, a, a, an actual book from 1898 for tourists that we found on eBay. <laughs> uh, but it totally, it shifted, you know, it, it provided a structure that guided us to all this weird stuff. And, and, and we found loads of things that we definitely wouldn't have seen otherwise. But yeah, I think you that's are- quite nice because you just found this book. No one's trying to sell or buy you anything. No. You've just created the roadmap to just have an interesting day out. Mm. But it's not led on the off the back of some product. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it's that it's fucking everywhere. Like you take a piss and there's an advert for like erectile dysfunction, not an advert for erectile dysfunction. Do you want erectile dysfunction? Yes, please. 50 pounds. It's like a Viagra advert or whatever. Mm. Just there's so many opportunities where there could be something else. There could be someone's art there. Like there's the like graffiti getting washed off so that the advert can go back on the wall. Or even fucking worse, you like like one of the banks he's got chipped off the wall so it could be sold to someone, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, it's it really fucking depresses me. And every every now and then you get people, you know, there's some this permitted graffiti zones where the the council like yeah. allow certain licensed individuals to put something up. Um, as long as it doesn't but say. But it's not like, exactly public art if you have to go and get yeah. a license off mm. of someone and then you can do it in this zone that no one's going to go and, and look at. Like graffiti is a reaction to the fact that you're not allowed to create anywhere else. Mm. You make a what a creativity zone. The idea that you're allowed a creativity zone where you're allowed to make something in the outside in public, that's fucked. But there's also be rules on what you can and can't do within that space, right? It's hot. It's horrible. It's hard. It's just when you really realize that absolutely every. So we were talking about public space before. Mm-hmm. Like public spaces aren't public spaces. They're still spaces for capital. Huge 64 adverts for an iPhone, the, you know, the rare minerals in which are probably we shouldn't be mining anyway, but then they're mined by like child slave labor in Indonesia that they can't get out of the supply chain. It's just fucking horrific. They've just remade Birmingham New Street. And on the outside, they have kitted it out, not just with like big electronic billboards, hmm. but the brightness of the sun. <laughs> like they are these massive curved screens that are constantly showing different like video adverts, but their brightness. I've just never seen brightness like it. It's just been turned up to max. Hmm. And then they're all around it. And then one of them is just shooting directly at a block of residential flats. Oh. So people just live opposite it and it must be beaming through That's their horrible. curtains 24 hours a day. It's just exhausting. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. The constant bombardment, like even on social media, there's promoted shit. There's, you walk through town, there's promoted corporate shit. Schools, Academies now have like Coca-Cola vendor machines and little, uh, you know, uh, ad space in there as well. Uh, but the bubble horrific must, because loads of things only work through advertising. Like loads of artistic products mm. are only possible because you can stick an advert on it. TV only works because you can put adverts between it or loads product of, placement within it. Or loads of podcasts only exist because... Um, Advertising for some boxes. Or to get a new mattress or whatever. Yeah. Like you get, art can only exist if it can serve capital. Even if that art itself has nothing to do, there's no way of helping capital. We talk about wasteful production yeah, and, and capitalism is efficient because of the market. But it's not fucking efficient, is it? If talented people who could be artists and could and could be making beautiful things, the only way they can use their labor and their skills is to sell it to a business mm-hmm. to to make art that isn't it, that's purpose is to sell you something. Yeah. It's to sell you something. So that's not efficiency. It's like there, there's a desire that doesn't exist. People don't want a thing. And then we have to trick them into thinking they do want a thing with these huge posters everywhere. That's not efficiency. That's a waste of human potential. It's a, it's a waste of talented people who could be 
making the world better or more beautiful or more interesting, but instead they are selling you shit. They're using their skills to sell you shit. And that's the only way they could, that's the way they can make money. The thing I was going to say before about that the, the bottom has to drop out of advertising is there must be a point at which everyone who is conceivably going to buy your product has it, mm. surely. Everyone <laughs> already has pillows and mattresses. There's going to be a point at which you can't just upsell everyone to the best mattress. I guess it's because p- that adverts aren't really doing that function anymore. That's like the classical understanding of what an advert is to do. But Coke adverts, yes, they'll drive Coke sales, but they also push this idea of the Coke brand. Mm. Coke no longer is just, we're a drink and we'd mm. like you to buy more of it. It's, we want to be considered one of like the fundamental liquids. Mm. This was like Nike. This is like no logo stuff. Mm. This is branding is now beyond selling the product. It's about getting that product as like a fundamental concept, like a primary color in your head. You think of a shoe, you think of Nike, you think of a refreshing drink, you think of Coke. It's more than just driving a single sale. It's about replacing your thoughts in the first place. Yeah. The, the depictions of the happy, beautiful family after football practice going for a Mackey's. But it's this, it's the all consuming blandness of every high street being the fucking same, the mm. same like 12 things, I a get- Millets, a WH Smiths, a Mackey's, a Paddy Power, a William Hill, another Paddy Power. I just found that this has completely destroyed my interest in traveling. Yeah. Because I go to European capitals and I go, I'm in uh, Budapest. Yeah. I'm in Vienna. I'm in Paris. I'm mm. in Berlin. Oh. What's it, what's it like? It's the same. Oh, okay. It's this. <laughs> Here's the commercial shopping street. There's a little bit of an old town, but all the pubs there are more expensive. You could find have the the, the, the real fascinating thrill of going into a Mackey's and seeing what the like, little part of the menu that's like the weird, unique yeah. promo they've got. Like if you go out of a... like They wouldn't have it here, but if you were to go to like Budapest, there'd be something called like... The British BAP. Yeah. Uh, to try and like make it like this more weird exotic bacon sandwich thing. I mean, I do genuinely, this is how depressing it is. One of the more exciting things about being in, in Europe is like going, oh, they've still got CNA. CNA still here because <laughs> CNA, that's interesting. I'm going yeah, yeah. CNA. Oh, okay. So it's a mix between M&S and a Primark. That's interesting. Oh, look, it's a of a, a German shop that's like a little bit like Holland and Barrett, but a little bit like Boots. That's interesting. <laughs> like, those are the things you spot. Those are, those are now the, the interesting yeah. things you can find in foreign Oh, clients. Walker's a Lay's here. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Oh, they got paprika. Well, even stuff, you know, like people will go abroad and they'll want to look at the old stuff, the old stuff. And part of that is, you know, just basic fascination with history in the past. Mm-hmm. And part of it's like, oh, this exists outside capital. But a lot of those things, if you interrogate them even for a moment, are just as fucked. The, the, the Colosseum in yeah. Rome, museums in London, you know, that, that have just acquired many of their objects from an Im- imperial capitalist project. Yeah. And they're fucked. But like, or big parks that were funded by, yeah. you know, mill owners or whatever. It's like, oh, yeah. I've just uncovered a statue. Who was this person? Oh, dear. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> That's normal. One yike. But you'll always get like this person was key to this country's like women's suffrage or this. There's like there's always there's a tiny bit of good stuff, but your average thing is like, oh, here's King Leopold II again. Let's look at what he did. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, shit. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've I've had that kind of realizations. Only like three. The three sort of spheres are here's some green space, reliably good. Mm. Here's a bit of history, but I just don't. 
you know no city gives you the figures you'd really want to hear about most of the time mm. or here's another shopping arcade <laughs> and that is every i haven't done any traveling outside of europe but mm. from my experience of europe that's europe mm. i tell you what is good though like because i still do go to other places and I, and i do try to go over to europe for gigs and i've got family over there so mm. i do I've popped over a lot for a lot of reasons. I've had to try and find something to do. Mm. Like my partner used to live in Vienna, so I was in Vienna a lot. And my God, that's just... There must be a cool counterculture there somewhere. I just can't find it. I remember one one weekend, we're like, let's go out and do something. And it was like 16 listings for opera and then one live beekeeping seminar. <laughs> <laughs> My hot tip for traveling, and I always have a good time, is you go to the museum with the narrowest scope you can humanly find. Like Stockport Hat Museum. Stockport Hat Museum, the Northampton Shoe Museum, there's the Pencil Museum, the Lawnmower Museum, mm. uh, the Cuckoo Clock Museum. Um, in in Vienna, there's like a triple whammy. There's the Globe, Papyrus, and Esperanto Museum. Nice incredible incredible triple whammy um <laughs> in amsterdam there's the pianola museum very good mm. and there's also the fluorescent art museum where there's one guy who loves not just fluorescent art but just fluorescence mm. itself just oh yeah um the ultraviolet what's, luminosity what's 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 he got there like neon signs what's oh so he has made i don't know what you'd even call it he's made this kind of mountainous landscape that is like this art installation mm. that is too big to ever leave this small like wow he's like from america and he talks with a hippie stoner's draw <laughs> and talks about how children were like blasted with uv back when they thought it was good for you and they just irradiated loads of children oh in america because they just believe god just the latest thing you know they, they used to think lead was good for you and you think uv was good for you there's loads of just irradiating oh kids. yeah they had um clark's shoe shops used to have like x-ray machines didn't they to size your yeah. foot up yeah jesus yeah, back in the day and he's made this installation and it because uv color is like the brightest kind of experience you can have without something being like backlit like technological brightness mm. Mm. those colors are like it's like being in a technicolor dreamland it's this like little mountainous cave he's made and everything is fluorescent and there's little divots in where he's like got bits of like fluorescent art from like other cultures just hidden in little places is it advertising is it trying to sell you something <laughs> oh it's like ganesh or something in, in the little divots mm. and he does try to get you to buy some of his prints or something at the end but i wouldn't call that capitalism because people don't buy them <laughs> well again do you think you know the way people look at a stained glass window now from uh -huh. from because you know you, you said Ganesh so it made me think of like religious iconographies and alternative you know people will make beautiful things in service of that rather than capital sure. it's, it's from especially in like uh like feudalism or whatever obviously just, oh, just pre-modernism yeah everything so, was in service of this single yeah, god yeah. was beauty organized organized yeah. religion yeah so you have these really beautiful stained glass windows but do you think after the revolution <laughs> that people will take get a uh, the huge Birmingham New Street neon mega technicolor advert machine and look at it and go, wow, look at that. It's so beautiful from an era we will never see again. That's interesting. Do you think anything, you know how we, we would look well, how at, we would look at a cathedral and go, wow, this is cool. But I think that the stained glass window is still serving the same purpose for the parishioners of a church that it does now. 
But an advert can go defunct. I suppose if we say that everyone's atheist now, yeah, yeah, and yeah. churches are just these relics, yeah, yeah. then yeah, maybe there's a kind of equivalence. I think in terms of the mainstream, I'm not. I'm not saying atheism is mainstream. I'm not going like full atheist. But sure. in terms of like its cultural centrality, how many people go to church on a Sunday yeah, compared yeah, yeah. to when? You know the country's a confessional state, and you, you're going to go to prison if you're not in church. Well, I don't know because I'm not. I'm not. That's di- that's di- that there is a cultural shift into like they, those stained glass windows are now much more seen as a relic than yeah, what okay. they what they what they once were. Or I suppose I mean I think we've all seen adverts for businesses that are bust. We've all seen echoes in capitalism, hmm. old advertisements, old products, old things that were trying to sell you something. And actually, people, if you think about 1950s adverts. Hmm. Like of the housewife and super sexist stuff, yeah. Yeah, but not just the super sexist stuff. I also think that iconography has become that's Americana. Mm. That already is not revered, but it's an aesthetic that people enjoy. It's already got this nostalgia to it. I don't know if that's the same because people aren't going to look back on stained glass windows and be like, "Oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> that that was a good era of advertising." God because obviously stained glass windows <laughs> lasted <laughs> for hundreds and hundreds of years. It wasn't just a temporary shift in trying to get you to buy cigarettes. <laughs> it depends. Because if there's a revolution, we'll look back on our capitalist relics in a very different way. Mm. Either we look upon them with fondness like we do at old adverts now, mm. or we're like partially dead anyway, because for capitalism <laughs> to still be going another 80 years, human yeah, life would be yeah. like so miserable. The idea of nostalgia... <laughs> what looking back on the past with fondness no just let me die <laughs> <laughs> let me die huge adverts for death let me die like if they went full you can just pay to die okay so we're gonna do dignitas here but it's private yeah dignitas on booper premium plan nothing would surprise me these days hmm. private euthanasia <laughs> genuinely I would go that, you know, that's a continuation of a pattern that I already see. I wouldn't... <sighs> yeah, I would just... If, if I saw an advert for that above a urinal... You know what, I'd actually? Go, oh, yeah. I'm going to go one further. I'd say it's good. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so I'm pro-euthanasia. Right. Yeah, same. Okay. I'd rather euthanasia goes out to everyone. Mm-hmm. But at least this way, there's a kind of death wealth tax if you have to pay a considerable sum, it stops a lot of hereditary wealth. Oh. It doesn't get that, redistributed. It just makes this massive this makes this corporation cottage yeah. industry. <laughs> Loads of money. But if you can't have a, a, a death wealth tax, far better that it just goes in like a vault, you know, mm. that no one can get to. If I can't tax the rich when they die, then I'd rather all of their money just goes in the sea. <laughs> it won't go to the sea they'll go to a stock market no I'm not, and, then, and, then, and then below that as it goes to boop <laughs> those are my three I- ideals one redistribute to make roads mm. two just put that money in the sea three <laughs> if it has to go to boop then it can go to boop but at least it's not passing down to their children Fuck. four is their children that's like the, the least desirable option what would beauty be like after the revolution for you well I don't have I'm not talking about an aesthetic I'm just talking about space for for beauty, space for expression everywhere. Like, just, I would be happy to see stuff that I think is rank, but if it's not an advert, like, it, you know, some some 15-year-old's collage 
but projected on the side of a train station. <laughs> like, I might be like, oh, that is shit. But it's not trying to sell me anything. But to be honest, I'd rather... Like, I just try not to engage with ads. I do the whole thing of, like, just don't look at It's them. fucking exhausting, though. Yeah. But you might be doing the same with, oh, but no, God, look at that collage. No, but I wouldn't. No, because I wouldn't. Because with an advert, the idea that you talk about or acknowledge an advert, even when, like, you know, when you're taking London Underground mm. and there's nothing to do, and the adverts are just huge, but they're also weird. Like, London adverts are just always so strange and mm. always talking about, do you want to put your money in a special ISA that yeah, I've yeah, never yeah, heard yeah, of? Yeah, yeah. Money? It's always that money? kind What's of this? stuff. <laughs> It's literally either like better ways to shave your head or better ways to make money sat at home. And so I feel just weird striking up conversations about it, but you're in such a featureless environment that it happens. But if I was on a train platform with someone beamed a 15-year-old child's shitty collage on, I'd be like, <laughs> hey, look at this. <laughs> look at what this idiot does. And do you know what's more? I think it would make strangers talk to each other. <laughs> oh, if, yes. If it was shit enough, if it was shit enough, it would beam it up. People would go, <laughs> that's shit. <laughs> and then you'd see someone else on the platform <laughs> laughing, going, oh my God, what a shit car. <laughs> and you'd be like, Hello, I know, right? Look at this. What are we teaching them? Yeah. And then the 15 year old's just there, just overhearing it, crying. Yeah. He's gone to the train station. <laughs> what does everyone think? Oh, it's my day. It's my turn. Everyone gets a day. Oh, I'm going to go and I'm just going to go and listen. I'm just going to sit in the corner. And there's, there's Sean Morley. Yeah, lads, look at this fucking pile of shit. What stupid moron made that? Just to make, me, make me feel sick. Fucking horrible shite. Yeah, just a woman weeping, pointing at it. You okay? You okay? It's the collage. <laughs> I've never seen anything so shit. And she's just pouring with tears. That would be better than an advert. It would be better than an advert. Social cohesion <laughs> for almost everyone. <laughs> beauty is trash. Yeah. Because the beauty is not in the just in the image, but in the Well, capitalism response. can't engage with ugliness anyway. No. You're never going to get like, not here's my 15-year-old child's shit collage. Buy Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> here's my seven-year-old's macaroni <laughs> Volvo. <laughs> Here is my five-year-old's shit poem about how he loves me. Please get a mortgage. <laughs> Imagine that one day you woke up and you went to work and everyone you meet's got a horse tattooed onto their face. Can you imagine that? A mighty stallion whose head sits above the brow and whose tail finishes near the beginnings of the opposing ear. They're all at it. The conductor on the train the teenagers hoofing pogs around the underpass, fully horsed, the lot of them. In the break room, people are talking about their horses. Breeds, names, tattoo maintenance dominate the chit-chat. Words like fetlock and bronco enter your vocabulary as they now come up on a daily basis. You ask a friend, why have you got a horse tattoo? They just get defensive, like you've asked something rude. Days into this experience, it just seems easier all round if you get your own horse tattoo. Initially, it feels like, well, you just didn't want a horse tattoo and so you weren't going to get one. But as time drags on and horse tattoos are firmly the norm, it feels a lot more and more like you're making some kind of statement by not having a horse tattoo. You're worried it feels like you're trying to say you're better than everyone else just because you don't have a nag on your nog. Your cave, your horse, and you're in. Well, gee up. 
And actually, it's not so hard to develop an interest in horse face tattoos. There's lots of different types, and if you move your eyebrows in the right way, it even looks a little bit like it's running in a slow, lopsided, ill kind of way. But it's great. I'm part of the gang. I'm normal. Eventually, someone else, a non-horser, bit of a weirdo if you ask me, they ask you, why have you got a horse tattooed on your face? Why do I have a horse tattooed on my face? What What actually were my reasons for doing this? Did, did I feel bad? Was I... Did I feel excluded or insecure about my place in my social circle? Is is that what they're trying to get me to admit to them? Are they, are they just trying to embarrass me? Is that what it is? I mean, this clearly doesn't feel like it's a good faith question. They're just trying to upset me. You tell them to get hoofed, which is now a popular piece of slang, and you think no more of it. The next day, you head into work and discover that Everyone's got a crab tattooed onto their neck. You look right down the camera lens and say, Oh, brother, here we go again. Freeze frame, credits roll, a great episode. Uh, Just a quick administrative note. Now we're going to go into a history section, and I've done my best with it, but this um, whole segment's going to be incredibly dense, so please get a firm grip on the handrail now. Here we go. Marx didn't really have a fully developed theory of culture. It was pretty clear that the cultures that would be permitted would only be those that justified capitalism, and his criticisms were mainly levelled at institutions like the church. He said that religion is the opium of the people, and that it kept them passive, that message of, uh, excuse me, if you can just shh, 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 please just keep shh, shh, shh during this life of suffering, then I promise that afterwards I will take you all to heaven. And that's not really a message that's going to encourage revolution anytime soon. And that's because Marx lived in the 19th century. Those were the major institutions. But as technology developed and Europe is blasted apart by two successive global wars, the role of information and media goes into overdrive in ways that no one really would have predicted. And just as the world is starting to tear itself apart for a second time, a group of intellectuals form the Frankfurt School to synthesise and build upon the works of people like Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud and a number of other important thinkers to try and gain a better understanding of society. And one of the things that their work is in reaction to is how all these grand theories and all these thinkers that were supposed to help us understand and explain and manage society has led not only to these societies breaking down, but the whole globe is getting ready to obliterate itself. The early 20th century was the era of people who subscribed to these singular monolithic blueprints of how the world should be. And in trying to impose the messiness and chaos of actual reality into these intellectual blueprints would cause so many unforeseen problems and it would unravel so chaotically for everyone that by the 1940s there was a war so large it killed just under 4% of the world population. The work and influence of the Frankfurt School signals the end of an intellectual era referred to as modernism, and that's the world in which we have these grand descriptive theories, and that they're desirable and we lionise these thinkers who tell us they've got it all mapped out and there's just one weird trick for bringing society into a state of order. And instead we enter into postmodernism, where that kind of mode isn't only undesirable, but it's actually pretty scary. 
Postmodernism is quite hard to define, but once you know what it's in reaction against, it comes into focus a little better. Postmodernism can probably be more flexible on the truth. Maybe there's more than one truth. Maybe there's no truth. But please, 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 anything other than one huge truth that everyone has to obey, otherwise they get shot. Postmodernism is more interested in being critical and reflexive and doubting itself. Or if you want an example, um, a 19th century modernist thinker might look at uh, football and present their findings as, Here is my Tracticus on football. Here is everything that you would ever need to know about football, from the geometry of the kicks right down to the optimum transfer window. That's it. That's football. Football is done. Complete. Do not at me. Whereas a postmodernist thinker might approach the same subject matter and go, Oh, hi, I've been thinking about football a lot recently. And sorry to say, but um, turns out football is bad. Yeah, sorry. Um, football's bad, it turns out. And if that second example sounds a little bit more familiar to you, that's because we're still very much within the postmodernist era. Analysis and critique are still our primary and secondary fire, with all alternatives looking a lot like fascism. The Frankfurt School's contribution to this is the establishment of critical theory, the discipline whereby society and culture is assessed and critiqued using knowledge from across humanities and the social sciences. This came at a time when the role of culture could be seen more and more as an industry, as expressed by the Frankfurt School critical theorist Theodore Adorno when he claimed that um, culture is an industry. And as the role of culture grew, the importance of analysing and critiquing its role as a form of social control became more and more important. But this phenomenon of the culture industry and its effects on society can only be seen and truly understood after World War II, when mass media truly comes into its own as a force for shaping society. Huge advances in psychology and propaganda coagulate into one beast. Advertising. Slowly, radios are usurped by television sets and become the must-have item across all households. Gone are the dozens of news sources competing for your attention. Broadcasters and advertisers can now beam directly into your house. Now, there are not individual cultural commodities that you can consume like a novella or a play. Thanks to mass media, culture has become this singular unified phenomenon that people are expected to participate in. We have developed the spectacle. A new challenger approaches. Name Guy Debord. Fighting style Continental philosophy. Weapon Un petit cigarette. In 1968, civil unrest is increasing in France, culminating in occupations, demonstrations, major general strikes, some involving over a fifth of the country that brought the national economy to a halt. One year earlier, Guy Debord published The Society of the Spectacle. The spectacle is the phenomenon that exists when representations fueled by mass media overtake reality. Mass media centralizes culture. It makes it possible to have a single shared understanding like never before. Imagine you hear an explosion during the night and in the morning you're thinking, what the heck was that noise? And you read in the papers, oh, it was just a gas canister going off at the space hopper factory. That's nothing to worry about. Regardless of whether or not that's true, Everyone now has this single narrative about what that noise was, because mass media was able to inform everyone at once. What an incredible form of social control. Not just for people having a shared understanding, but for a shared culture as well. The spectacle can not only directly inform, but slowly affect your understanding of the world by representing it in a certain way. If everyone's watching the same drama or soap opera, 
and that show tells us who's good, what's bad, what behaviours are good, what behaviours are unacceptable, women are shown in a soft light, men are taking a lead on resolving the problem, how strange and untrustworthy foreigners are. And the spectacle can also combine with advertising to affect a complete inversion of our relationship with products and commodities. Before advertising, products and items were just there to fulfil our desires. Do you want a chop? <laughs> Get yourself an axe. You're feeling cold? Well, you might enjoy something I call a coat. Now, commodities and their manufacturers are in charge of our desires as well. They give you the desire, and then they sell you the product. What's more is the value of the product is less and less about its function. More and more, the product exists to be sold in terms of how it can help you cultivate your own image. Representations have come to the fore, and you have to manage your own representation of yourself. If you wear this, you'll look cool, urban, modern, rich. If you drive this car, you'll look sexy. Is it a good car? Uh, doesn't matter. Maybe no, maybe not, actually. Do you want to prove that you're normal? Well, why not get a tattoo of a horse on your face? You see, that was in there for a reason. There was a prologue. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> the spectacle occurs when these representations are everywhere, surrounding everything and in every environment, there are representations of reality. In some cases, masking reality itself. The spectacle can begin to inform and even overtake your understanding of what is real. It can compete with reality. This is something we already understand through the arguments that exist now around representation. We know that, for instance, interest in women entering STEM will soar once young women are exposed to positive representations of intellectual, academic, scientific women in films, TV, books, etc. The shared collective understanding of reality, as informed by mass media, can inform people of their understanding of what's possible for them in their life. But at its worst, the spectacle can alienate us from ourselves and our community as it competes with reality as the dominant narrative of our lives. I can know that try as hard as I can, I'm just poor through circumstances. Something has happened to me, I'm, I'm out on my luck. But if all I hear about is shirkers and skivers, I cannot internalise those ideas. Those can dominate my own understanding from my own lived reality. I can believe that everyone else really is trying hard and I am actually just lazy. If I'm a person of colour in a racist society and I'm subjected to racist tropes and depictions of my race, it can affect my self-esteem, my feeling of my own value, or I can start to believe those tropes about myself or other members of my community. If I hear that austerity is over and the country is now prosperous, and yeah, I look out my window at my community, there's no jobs, everyone's still poor. You might be inclined to think maybe my community is just an unlucky outlier, but otherwise things are improving, things are going well spectacle engenders passivity if your lived experience doesn't conform to the representations you're seeing you might be inclined just to think you're weird makes it very hard to coordinate or, or collectivize and that's just it it's because it's a spectacle it's a thing to observe or participate in but not to change or criticize it is never a call to action anything revolutionary or radical is either excluded from culture or will only be allowed in if it is modified sterilized no longer radical i'm as bad as hell and i'm not gonna take this anymore Peter board argued that the spectacle comes in two forms concentrated and diffuse depending on how active that level of social control is if you imagine in the ussr or stalinism concentrated spectacle is like a horse being led to water and told if you don't drink this water i'm gonna shoot your head off and then diffuse spectacle that of capitalist liberal democracy is like a horse being 
allowed to roam freely but water is all but unavailable and you've paid hundreds of other horses to stand around drinking coca-cola and saying oh, oh, oh boy that hit the spot also the coat costs four francs if you'd like to know more about the society of the spectacle you can always just watch the sunglasses scene from john carpenter's they live and you're basically up to speed As a qualification, obviously society is more splintered now, we don't have a singular monoculture, it's not like when there was just two channels on the TV, but that doesn't really affect how the spectacle functions as a phenomenon. Even if we're not all watching Corrie of an evening, we've all got our own little shows and programmes to tap into, we are still connected to capital and culture that have combined to ensure that we're all plugged into some cultural commodity or other. The landscape of our reality and how we reflexively understand the world around us is still defined by the culture industry, no matter how much we splinter into our own subculture. The spectacle seeps into our consciousness and it defects all our decisions from shoe wear to our political leaders. Never in my lifetime has an election been decided by policy. In the 2015 general election, Ed Miliband lost on image. He was called a North London geek, um, aka a Jewish man, and while his team was trying to make him seem relatable to the British public, some plucky tabloid journalists discovered that Miliband houses the property unique to all members of the human race, in that they look kind of weird if you choose a random freeze frame while they're eating a bacon sandwich. And as absurd as that was as a political argument, even rebuking it, suddenly we're all talking about Miliband's image, how he looks, how he appears, the connotations of that, but none of the policies that he took the liberty of carving into a gigantic stone monolith. Arguably, a better example is the first ever US presidential televised debate between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. The two campaigns treated the appearance very differently, Nixon's team just treating it like another live appearance, so he refused makeup. Um, so his sweat was visible under the hot lights and the colour of his suit matched that of the backdrop so it sort of reduced his prominence and made him sort of sink into the background. Compared to Kennedy, Richard Nixon looked weird and ill. Viewers on television overwhelmingly reported that Kennedy had won that debate but listeners on radio voted that Nixon had won and in the election Kennedy destroyed him. And even now in the politics of today the spectacle is just as ever-present in the role that it plays, no more so than in the Lib Dems. The Liberal Democrats, to my mind, are the spectacle made flesh. Divorced from the understanding that politics is just a representation of power struggles between class interests, between left and right, working class and the capitalist class, who have all agreed to participate in this game called Parliament that helps us resolve those class divisions without it leading to civil unrest and bloodshed. But if you're the Lib Dems and you can't really perceive that underpinning, you can't understand that politics is just an expression of class interests, and you can't understand the reality underneath the rhetoric of Parliament, then you're just going to be lost. You're not going to understand why all these factions can't all get along. Like, what have they got to be arguing about? Why is everyone shouting? Don't we all have nice jobs here as MPs? Sometimes I feel like the only bloody rational person here, everyone here, seems pretty nuts. And you know, I, I get it. If all I knew of the world that was represented back at me was that that was in mass media, then yeah, it would look a lot like everyone else has lost the plot. Can you imagine being angry about austerity now? That's just insane. No one's talking about austerity anymore. We've moved on. I look out my window and I look out from everything I can see between my house outside the windows of the taxi and parliament and I don't see a shred of austerity there. 
And that's just it. If you've helped create the media and then you watch the media and then you let your own creation become your reality, you you would be lost. The Lib Dems represent that cross-section of the capitalists and the petty bourgeois that have sort of fallen for their own tricks, a snake eating its own tail, or less charitably, a human centipede that's long enough to go all the way around and join up with itself. During the events of May 1968 in Paris, the student occupations reached such a fever pitch that activists were ripping up paving slabs to add to barricades to protect themselves against the increasingly hostile police forces. As they did so, they discovered that underneath the street there was sand, which quickly became a metaphor for the urban alienation that the movement was protesting, that the reality presented to you is one that is artificial and seemingly inescapable, but that there is another reality underneath it that you are so alienated from that you never even knew about it and that resonates with me and maybe you as well what some mp said on the news what film or book or game is coming out and what people have said about it or coming back home to finish the show i'm watching after work and yet i don't even know who lives on my street there's no one around that i know well enough even to say hello to when i'm walking down the road Buildings and businesses vanish and new buildings appear and my community changes around me and every detail comes as a shock. I haven't got a fucking clue what's going on around me. Sometimes I feel completely detached from my physical reality. And this isn't me being some smartphone millennial. This is a feeling of alienation that was felt so keenly by people of a whole other time that it became the slogan of a protest movement 30 years before I was born. And with it, the hope that society could be more beautiful. Under the cobbles, there is a beach. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean, with additional music by Sean Morley. If you want to lend us a hand in the eternal struggle to overthrow capitalism and slash or help us grow our DIY podcast, then please drop us a review on iTunes or give us a wee plug on social media. Our first ever live show is coming up on November the 26th as part of the Manchester Podcast Festival at the Pier Hat. Thank you for everything. Please go now in peace. Thank you.